Warning, this episode contains descriptions of fictionalized violence that might be disturbing to some. Listener discretion is advised. A young girl wakes up at night. She is in an asylum. She opens her eyes to the looming black silhouette of two women, much bigger than her. She is frightened, but not surprised. They have done this before. Every night, they stare at her sleeping body. Sometimes, it wakes her up. She is more concerned about the nights when she doesn't wake up. But what scares her the most is the third figure, the one at the foot of her bed. A woman in an eye patch. She doesn't move. She doesn't say anything. But the young woman can feel her malicious intent. One eye, they call her. The young woman told the doctor about these nightly visits. They shake their heads sadly. One eye has been in a stupor for six years, they condescend. She hasn't moved since then. The men tell her that she is not yet cured, that she is hallucinating. Every night, the three of them stand in front of her, staring. Then they say, no, no, not yet, and they disappear. Tonight, something is different. The young woman hears their conspiratorial whispers. She asks what they're planning. They tell her to be quiet. Your eyes, they're not yours, one of them says. Then one eye walks in. The other two are frightened of her presence. One eye grabs the young girl and tells her, the bird has stolen your eyes. Your eyes are not yours. They are the cuckoo's eyes. And I will remove that damned bird that's nesting inside of you. The young woman begs. She pleads. She tries to escape. The other women overpower her. One eye, standing tall, grabs a knitting needle, raises it above her head, and the needle goes right into the young woman's eyes. The pain is excruciating. She screams. The others laugh. She struggles. She is unable to move. Another needle goes in. Now there is nothing but a white, hot light. The young woman, exhausted, spent of her powers, collapses. Her scream is silent, frozen, forever. One eye dances in mad frenzy. The two other women look at each other. But where is the bird? They realize there is no bird. They were deceived. They didn't want this to happen. They did not want to harm the young girl, only get rid of the evil bird possessing her. They are furious. They want revenge. The two of them gather their strength. They grab one eye. They drag her, screaming to the burning stove. The hellish fire overwhelms her face. The air sizzles with burning flesh. And with all their strength, they pull her head back. And one final push. They smash her face into the stove plate. Horror fiction is a peculiar thing. For those who love the genre, the appeal seems evident. But even for us horror fans, it's hard to answer the question, why do you like this stuff? This stuff, said with that kind of scorn and confusion. And to be fair, it is a hard question to answer. Why subject yourself to unpleasant, terrifying images? Why watch things on screen that would be an absolute turn-off if you saw it in real life? Sure, we can weakly come up with psychological explanations, talk about catharsis and all that, cite a random study about horror decreasing stress and increasing empathy. 
But we know that's kind of a cop-out. A pat response that's just there to justify what honestly might be hard to justify. I can't think of any person saying, well, time to decrease stress and increase my empathy by watching Jason Voorhees slash up some campers. Frankly, a person like that would be more terrifying than whatever shows up on screen. Sounds crazy, right? Why would anyone enjoy this thing? And yet, horror is lucrative. It's relatively quick to turn around a movie with a low budget, and an audience will always be there for even the most poorly made horror film. Even the trashiest, dumbest, most low-quality horror film will find passionate defenders. It's one of the most profitable genres out there. There's always been an appetite for scaring yourself stiff. Frightening stories are as old as fairy tales. But here, I want to focus on a particular style of horror. We're not talking about the supernatural, the freaky, the spooky, or that new term, elevated horror, people used to feel better about their movie-watching habits. I want to go down to the trashiest of the trash, the violent, bloodthirsty affairs that display the worst of the worst that humans are able to inflict on each other. And why the hell people find that fun? A good case study is the theater that began this trend in horror. In the 18th and 19th century, horror tended to be gothic, focusing on decaying old castles and supernatural terrors. But this little theater changed things around, brought horror closer to home, and taught movies how to create those shivers to a modern audience. But first, a bit of background. Paris, the city of light. One of the first cities in Europe to introduce street lighting in the 17th century. And afterwards, the light of Paris became the light of the mind as the Enlightenment era produced many philosophers, the Voltaires, Diderots, and Jacques Rousseaus of the world. In the 19th century, Paris had been through a lot. It had gone through the French Revolution, Napoleon, and the Napoleonic Wars. Now the dust had settled. Paris seemed to be more glowing than ever before. It was a period of growing prosperity, with a new class emerging that today we know as the bourgeoisie, the doctors, lawyers, industrialists, and bureaucrats that helped grow the city. Paris also attracted poets and artists of all stripes. It was an exciting place of innovation where salons tried new art forms formerly rejected by the establishment. Impressionism made a splash around the world. So did the poetry of Rimbaud and Baudelaire, the music of Debussy and Bizet, and the novels of Victor Hugo and Gustave Flaubert. The city officially got its nickname with the introduction of modern electrified lanterns. Then it became the City of Lights. But strong lights cast a harsh shadow. We have the problems of colonialism, racism, and anti-Semitism. The rise of the bourgeoisie also meant growing inequality between the haves and the have-nots. All of this is plastered over by a bourgeois moralism that would rather not see or discuss these things. A repressive moralism that wanted to believe things are fine, as long as you follow religion, be polite, and work hard. Pull yourself by your bootstraps thinking. The working class were put through miserable working conditions, and even more miserable social conditions. The growing class consciousness culminated in the Paris Commune, where workers took to the streets and demanded things change. The Commune failed, but it became a model and an inspiration for people like Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin. Paris was a place obsessed with the strange, the grotesque, the seedy underbelly of life. Its most famous poet Baudelaire spilled much ink on the darker aspects of the city. People gathered to read newspaper articles called the Fait divers, 
short articles describing the worst kinds of crime. These articles could be a few sentences, and the writers use literary flourishes, ironic twists, and macabre descriptions to attract readership. Parisians read in the Fait divers all sorts of perverse crimes in all its graphic details, and would eagerly follow up on the next story of savagery. In a word, the Fait divers were the true crime podcasts of the 19th century. All of this dark side seemed to be ignored by the literature and theater of the time. Or if they did broach the subject, like in melodrama, it would always end with a moral. Be good, for goodness is rewarded. This is the type of thinking writer Emile Zola was pushing against when he formulated his ideas for naturalism. Zola's naturalism wanted to show reality as is, with a scientific detachment. He urged his fellow artists to turn a clinical eye to social ills. To not judge the moral standing of the characters, but to analyze the social, historical, and even physiological conditions that led people to make the choices they did. Other artists listened to his call, and naturalism became the style of the late 19th century. Such is the situation that Oscar Metinier was living in when he bought his theater. So you walk down the Rue Piaget in Paris. It's a very lively place. The sound of music, the sight of fishnet stockings, the smell of smoke permeate every corner of the street. But you, you keep on walking. You come upon a crossroad. You turn right, down Rue Chapital. You are struck by the sudden change of scenery. Just a minute ago, happy nightlife and crowded streets. Now with just a right turn, lonely alleys, silence, darkness. There is only you your footsteps, and your thoughts. The narrow alley is so small you almost miss it. You enter, and at the end of the lonely corridor is a barely lit theater. You know that this was once a chapel, a chapel that had stood through the terrors of the French Revolution, a street that was used as a blockade during the Paris Commune. The atmosphere of the chapel is still felt when you enter, as two giant wooden angels greet you into this unholy place. You sit in the front row, so close to the stage you're afraid of stretching your legs and disturb the actors. The show begins. Welcome to Oscar Metinier's Theatre. Welcome to the Grand Guignol. Metinier worked as a secretary for the police, where he experienced first-hand accounts of the crimes and sordid affairs that would become scripts for his shows. The Grand Guignol was not yet a stage of horror. The plays were naturalistic, and Metinier wanted to show the conditions of the world as he saw it, which meant emphasis on the darker, crime-ridden parts of life. And it wasn't a quick jump from Metinier's naturalism to full-fledged horror. Which was exactly what happened when Metinier sold the theater only a year after its founding. Then came the next director by the name of Max Murray. Horror at the time was focused on the supernatural, tales of ghosts, haunted gothic mansions, and dark creatures that threatened the natural order. Moray bought the Grand Guignol in 1897, the same year Bram Stoker published his novel Dracula. So Moray's idea of horror went quite against the grain. His plays wouldn't feature the otherworldly, but the source of horror would be everyday tales of crime that filled the fait divers. Metinier thought his play served a social purpose. Not that he wasn't above falling into sensationalist accounts, but he still believed in the naturalist call, not Murray. Murray was first and foremost an entertainer. 
and abstracting away the social message of the earlier plays, his main focus was on terrifying the pants off the audience. Murray got fear down to a science. Everything about the performance was made to make full use of the atmosphere. From the moment you enter the Grand Guignol flanked by two giant wooden angels, a reminder of the origins of the chapel, and a reminder of the grim rituals people will be witnessing. The theater was so cramped and so small that the front row audience could almost shake hands with the actors. The dilapidated roofs would leak when it rains, and audiences swore that it would rain blood. Buckets were provided in case people lost their lunches at the horrific moments of the play. Everything we know about the Grand Guignol is shrouded in myth, and audiences loved to add their own take in the myth building. Murray's publicity stunts included having a doctor in case anyone fainted during the performance. One story has it that, at a particular night, a man in the audience found himself overwhelmed by the violence on stage and fainted. His wife called out for a doctor. Murray came to her apologetically informing her that the doctor was indisposed at the moment, for he too had fainted. The structure of a typical evening at the Grand Guignol was alternating between tales of terror and more light-hearted short plays, usually musical or sex comedies. This was called the hot and cold shower technique. You watch something scary, you're tense, you're wary of what's happening on stage. Then, a comedy. You feel relaxed, your shoulders drop, you settle in your seat. And that's when the horror comes in and takes hold of you again. A shock to the nervous system when you feel safest. Just like a green leaf appears fresher in a dark background, the hot and cold shower technique made the comedy more comedic and the horror more horrific. It promised an alternating of moods so that the show never got monotonous. And the people who wrote those plays were also dedicating to getting the biggest shrieks from the audience. Such is the case of one Andre Delord. Andre Delord was born in 1869, and as a young boy, had a morbid fear and fascination with death. Probably something normal for someone so young. However, his father, a sensible bourgeois man, would have none of it. He had his son keep vigil over his grandmother's dead body on the evening before the burial. Doing so, the father thought, would rid his son of any silly fear and preoccupation with death. Yeah, that backfired. Delord was trained to be a lawyer, but found a passion for the theater. He wrote not only for the Grand Guignol, but it was his work with the Guignol that earned him the name the Prince of Terror. Delord spared no expense in scaring the living daylights out of his audiences, plunging deep into the abyss of human depravity, taking on themes of madness, crime, sadism, and the cruelty humans inflict on each other. Quote, just as Messinier had used the Grand Guignol to perfect his own brand of sordid slice-of-life sketches to educate Parisian audiences about how the underclass lived and thought, the Lord invented a new dramatic genre devoted to slices of death. It spoke to mankind's universal dread. End quote. It helped that he was considered a master among playwrights. Even critics who hated the content of his work had to begrudgingly recognize the artistry of his style. Delord's theory was that people were attracted to the possibility of danger. Not that anything bad would happen, but that, perhaps, maybe, it might. In his essay on fear in literature, he ponders, quote, Don't they derive the acute pleasure at the circus or music hall from watching the most dangerous feats? 
If I perspire with anxiety as I follow the movements of the dancer along the tightrope, if my breathing stops with the music as the young woman in pig tights is about to attempt what she herself calls the death leap, it is because I actually imagine an atrocious death for her, her battered corpse bloodying the sand in the ring. No doubt, if I were sure that the accident was going to happen, I would be the first to rush forward to prevent it. But if, on the other hand, I was certain that it would not happen, I would lose interest in the show. A most curious compromise on the part of our consciousness is at work here. If my sensibility steps forth to reproach me for the odious satisfaction that I find in thus anticipating a calamity, I immediately assuage my scruples by involving the laws of probabilities. There is only one chance in a thousand that the accident will happen precisely today. But as sure as this reassuring thought runs the risk of dulling my pleasure, I revive it again by calling up in my mind's eye the image of the fall, despite what seems possible. End quote. So the more logical, moral part of the mind wrestles with the other part that is drawn by morbid curiosity. The play should both reassure you that everything on stage is fiction, and yet tickle your dark, subconscious mind into going, unless... An ingenious move in Delort's script would be having the killers describe the torture they're about to inflict before inflicting it. Now this may sound like a violation of the oft-repeated rule, show don't tell, but it served a purpose. By priming the audience to imagine the horror that's about to happen, the imagination of the spectators fills in the gap and perceives more than they've been shown. I tell the audience in detail how I'm going to gouge someone's eyes out. I plunge a screwdriver near their head and they release a packet of blood and scream while holding a bloodied hand over the eye. The audience, if only for a split second, will get the horrifying perception and might swear that they actually saw an eye being removed. The Lord was in search for more realistic ways of depicting this violence. He studied psychologies and talked to many experts in the field. No doubt this led him to one of his most frequent collaborators, Alfred Binet. Binet is primarily known for his works on the Binet-Simon test, considered to be the first IQ test. Few people who study psychology have any clue of Binet's interesting side gig as a writer of blood and guts. Binet and Delord combine the expertise in their respective fields, the knowledge of the word and the knowledge of the human mind. All of this increased the efficacy of Moray's vision. Oh yeah, that play I mentioned in the beginning? That's one of Binet and Delord's plays, A Crime in the Madhouse. And of course, no matter how skilled you are at describing a scene, you still have to bring it to life. This was the task of Paul Ratineau. Ratineau worked as an actor before moving into stagecraft. He then became responsible for making sure spectators would see the worst of tortures on stage every night. His experience on the stage gave him an intuitive feel for what to put the actors through. And he, quote, knew more than anyone else in Paris about the technique of horror effects. He was an expert in stage weaponry, bloodstains, acid burns, pestilent ulcers, and severed heads. And he had the composure of a highly experienced stage manager, a wicked Montmartre sense of humor, and a memory in which contained, in astonishing detail, everything about the theater of fear. End quote. Some of Ratineau's go-to moves was adding a green light in the corner of the stage to give a subtle, unpleasant feeling. Think of all the horror films that have a sickly green filter today. He had an arsenal of retractable weapons, an army of puppets and paper mache severed limbs, eyeballs from taxidermists for that extra bounce, and blood, lots of blood. 
of all different shades and textures, depending on what the mood requires. Moray sold the Guignol in 1915. Given the real-life horror of World War I happening, perhaps Moray lost his appetite for horror on the stage. But he had set in motion a bloody machine of terror that just grew from there. Moray handed over directorship to a man named Camille Choisy, and Choisy, the Lord, and Ratineau became known as the Three Bandits of Horror as the Guignol entered its golden age. During its heyday, the Grand Guignol had a massive, almost universal appeal. It was frequented by practically all members of Parisian society. Famous authors like Colette and Anaïs Nin were among the attendees of the theater. Its appeal was international. A tour guide handbook in 1910 listed it as a must-see for tourists, right after the Eiffel Tower. Kings and queens of countries would visit the tiny cramped theater. Even Ho Chi Minh, the future revolutionary and leader of Vietnam. One of Ho Chi Minh's favorite haunts when working as a chef in Paris was the Grand Guignol. Amused writers of the time noticed the phenomena of Guignolers. These were a group of people who became obsessed with the theater. They would be seen coming to the shows over and over again, waiting to relive the macabre every night. They knew of Maury and Choice's publicity stunts and played along. They were known for playing pranks on newcomers, waiting to see the reactions at the most terrible scenes that they, the Guignolers, already knew was about to come. They dress up, get so involved in the play that they shout out in excitement, anticipation, and fear during performances. The fanboys and fangirls of the grisly Grand Guignol plays. Because of its success, the Grand Guignol tried to expand to other countries. All those ventures, however, failed. The success was too tied to its location. In the more puritanical United States, the Grand Guignol shocked, and not in a good way. Variety magazine called these shows unqualified dirt, unsubtle, coarse, vulgar, and vile. Yeah, exactly what they say about horror movies today. But I've talked about what goes on behind the stage and in front of the stage. But what about on the stage? Who were the unfortunate victims who would die every night? What was their story? The most famous of the Grand Guignol stars was one Paula Maxa. She started off in horror silent movies and then herself an audience member of the Grand Guignol got a job there. After joining the theater in 1917, Maxa became the main attraction of the theater. During her stint at the Guignol, she was, according to a columnist at the time, quote, All the humiliations that this charming artist had endured during her short but already glorious career cannot be ignored. Cut into 93 pieces by an invisible Spanish dagger, stitched back together in two seconds by a Samaritan, flattened by a steamroller, disemboweled by a slaughterman who steals her intestines, shot by firing squad, quartered, burned alive, devoured by a puma, crucified, shot with a pistol, stabbed, raped, and still she stays happy and smiling. End quote. This was from a newspaper article and Paula Maxa proudly quoted it in her memoirs. She was called the most assassinated woman in the world. Legend says she died more than 10,000 times on stage. Paula Maxa grew up in one of those well-off, old-fashioned bourgeois households. At a young age, the dark fate that awaited her drew its claws. Things took a fatal turn when at 15, her boyfriend lured her into the dark woods and attempted to kill her. Her throat slashed. She woke up at the hospital and learned that her boyfriend killed himself. 
a murder-suicide, but with one survivor. Bloodlust followed me like a curse, she wrote. A little later, she married a count who gave her a life of luxury, but she was bored. That's when she discovered the Grand Guignol and found her home in its violent, bloody arms. What follows next is a series of lovers, driven crazy by her presence, tales of violence, sex, and opium. If all of this sounds a little too fabricated, that's probably because it was. Like Moray, like the Lord Ratino and the Guignolers, Maxa was very conscious of creating a mythology around her. The memoir above was published in True Confessions, a tabloid magazine of the era, the kind of magazine that would today write about alien abductions or secret satanic sex parties. And she titled the memoir, I Am the Maddest Woman in the World. Was Paula Maxa having fun giving readers what they wanted, or was she hiding a dark secret in plain sight? We'll never know. We don't have much records of Paula Maxa's life before she became an actress. She made sure to cultivate the mystery very well. In the 60s, long after she left the Grand Guignol, Maxa released a second memoir about life on stage. These were much more grounded and a light-hearted recounting of her daily life as the most murdered woman in the world. She described why she preferred working in theater over cinema. Quote, in the cinema, you have a series of images. Everything happens very quickly. But to see people in the flesh, suffering and dying at the slow pace required by live performance, that is much more effective. End quote. She talked about the very mundane difficulty of surviving all these deaths on stage. The washing up. Quote, you had to wash your hair every evening, twice when there was a matinee. The large shirts that I had to wear also had to be washed. The wings backstage were like a laundry. On top of that, I also had to take a bath because I was red from head to toe. End quote. And finally, we see someone meticulously devoted to her craft. Quote, Just a word or a phrase delivered a little too quickly, a little too harshly, could cause laughter. It required millimeter precision. If the atmosphere was broken, it had to be recaptured, which was at times very difficult, if not impossible. End quote. Things took a toll for the Guignol in 1927, when Choisy sold the theater to Jacques Jovin. Jovin was described as a micromanager, someone who wanted to be in full control of everything. While Max Murray was notorious for coming in and changing scripts last minute, he still made sure to delegate tasks to their respective experts. Paula wrote in her memoir, quote, Jovin wasn't a bad director. He put on some good shows, but he wanted to do everything himself, especially the writing of the plays which created a great monotony, end quote. Like any micromanager who takes over a company, Jovin wanted to clear the space of all previous influences. He fired Paula Maxa, among others, because he didn't want to have one star take up the whole show. This split led Maxa to create her own experimental theater for a while, the theater of virtue and vice. But things carried on. Audiences flocked to the shows. Despite the big change in cast, the biggest problem was the current world historical events happening in 1930, which put Jovin in very difficult straits. And Jovin ended up handing over the directorship to an English woman, Eva Berkman, in 1938. Berkman brought Paula Maxa back, but things weren't the same. People commented on how her yells weren't as strong as they used to be. She suffered from a weakened voice. The Scream Queen had screamed herself out. Then, just a little over a year after taking over, Berkman had to flee Paris. What caused her to run away, you might ask? What made her leave France in 1940? 
Oh, how about the little inconvenience of the Nazi occupation? It was a rough four years for Paris, for France, for indeed the world. The Nazi obsession with race purity and puritanical whitewashing of all art made them hate the Grand Guignol and all that it stood for. They classified the theater as degenerate art. But then, try as they might, it proved too difficult to close. It was just too popular. The horrors of the stage gave their occupied subjects a respite from the daily horror of their lives. And, most embarrassingly for the German occupiers, a couple of high-ranking Nazi generals were also seen walking out of the Rue Chapital. They decided to let it run for the time being. But the theater will be destroyed once they win. Well, they didn't win. And the theater remained. In 1944, the Allies entered France. U.S. General Patton attended the Grand Guignol performance after the war ended. Ever Berkman returned to take over directorship. But the past decade had set things in motion. There was an irreversible decline. People just weren't attending performances like they used to. Even the hardcore Guignolers were less visible. Berkman escaped again in the 1950s, this time to flee debt. And the Grand Guignol was handed to its final director, Charles Nonon. But there is some speculation about what caused audiences to lose interest. Nonon himself believed that after the sickeningly all-too-real stories of the Holocaust, going to watch people get tortured on stage felt wrong, embarrassing. It just didn't feel right. Quote, we can never equal Buchenwald. Before the war, everyone felt what was happening on stage was impossible. Now we know that these things, and worse, are possible in reality. End quote. Did the horrors of the war burst people's bubble? That's one explanation. But then you have to explain the fact that horror movies in the 50s started getting a lot more violent. Yes, another explanation was that the Grand Guignol had a bigger competitor to deal with. A competitor larger than reality. Movies. The theater and the movies had mutually beneficial relationship for the longest time. Back in the 1920s, German Expressionist films borrowed macabre elements from the Guignol, and the Guignol adapted some of the movies for the stage. But now the special effects of the film industry had gotten much more realistic, and movies started taking the place of theaters when people thought of having a night out. The irony being that the horror movies probably got better thanks to the influence of the Grand Guignol. The Grand Guignol had its final performance in 1962. And then the theater of murder, carnage, and blood was no more. It's hard to trace a direct link between the Grand Guignol and modern horror movies, but the specter of the theater is haunting the genre. In the 1950s, Hammer Films in the UK released the film Frankenstein. This wasn't the first Frankenstein film, of course. But people who grew up on the relatively tame Universal Monster movies would have been shocked by how violent the new Hammer version was. Parallels were quickly drawn between Hammer and the now-dying Grand Guignol Theater. Grand Guignolesque became an adjective to describe the new wave of horror movies that focused on violence and sadism. By the 60s, self-imposed movie codes relaxed their grip on the industry. And new filming techniques and new directors meant that things got experimental and violent. A wave of so-called exploitation films, violent, sadistic movies of questionable moral and filmic qualities, but films that, like the Grand Guignol of Murray, did their best to shock, revile, and disgust their audiences. This was the intermixing of traditions that the current wave of horror artists grew up on. The exploitation, the slasher, the splatterpunk. Look up books on history of these genres and the Grand Guignol will likely appear in the first chapters. 
Clive Barker, known for his blood and guts stories in movies such as the Hellraiser series, wrote the A to Z of horror, which listed the theater. The theater troupe in Anne Rice's interview with the vampire was also inspired by the Grand Guignol. The practical effects of Ratineau found their way in horror films. Despite the increase of CGI, a lot of connoisseurs prefer the practical effect way of making movies, even today. The way horror films are marketed owe a debt to Moray. There's always been a lot of mythologizing and urban legends about that one movie. The horror movie that is so bad, so depraved, so terrifying, it drives audiences to sickness. Film directors like Eli Roth employed the same stunts of having a medical doctor during a screening in case anyone fainted. Recently, the movie Terrifier 2 has inspired scores of people to gleefully recount tales of how audiences threw up in the theater. The tradition is still alive. So here's the part where I weakly attempt to explain the appeal of things like the Grand Guignol. I mean, first we have the major theory, catharsis. The idea that emotions build up inside your body and watching something extreme will purge those emotions. You watch horrific or tragic things because it leaves you with healthier emotional bowels. Then you have the sublime. The reminder that there are things in heaven and earth far beyond what is dreamt of in your philosophy. The sublime is a storm in the middle of the ocean. An experience that is at the same time terrifying and beautiful. That is a thing so big, so incomprehensible, it rearranges your senses. It leaves you shocked and frazzled, but somehow with a deeper understanding of the world. Less dramatic theories state that fiction is a rehearsal for life. Watching terrible things in a fictional setting is like a thought experiment, a way to make yourself resilient for whatever life might throw at you. Though one hopes what life throws at you is less than a chainsaw-wielding maniac. Like fairy tales can create a symbolic reality to help kids cope with difficulty of growing up, horror can help create a symbolic reality for adults to make sense of the terrible things in the world. Another psychological answer is that horror helps us confront our shadow. The shadow is the part of ourselves that we consider dark, repulsive, stuff we'd rather repress but repress at our own peril. Getting in touch with the darker side of life and accepting it paradoxically helps us gain control over it. Repressing it just makes the monster in the basement come back with a vengeance. There is yet another idea that says that we like experience fear because we can experience fear. That might sound confusing, but shuddering, cringing, jumping out of your seat and screaming. These are a way to show your physiological functions are still working. Like laughing massages the diaphragm and deepens breathing, fear responses is a systems check for your fight or flight response. Another physiological theory is even simpler. It says that arousal is arousal. The body sees no difference between adrenaline-soaked fear or ecstasy. Proponents of this theory are the ones that will tell you to take your date to a roller coaster or to go bungee jumping. The adrenaline from facing this fear can easily translate into other things. No wonder horror movies are a popular outing for couples. I could keep going on, but I want to end with a thought. All of the theories of horror have only you, the watcher, and the show. But the thing I find fascinating about horror is that it connects all the people involved in the genre. When I read the antics of the Grignolers, I get it. Most theories of horror focus on the individual reactions to being frightened. While fear is individual, the total experience of horror happens as a group, I think. And it isn't all about fear. There is a weird form of social bonding that happens when you watch scary things together. The Guignolers and their going back to relive the darkness again and again to initiate new people into the darkness 
it's all very familiar. It's the feeling of taking your friends to a movie you've already seen and closely watching their reactions to specific bits. It's kids daring one another to go into that dark house in the neighborhood. It's laughing when someone in the audience screams, and then in turn getting laughed at when you gasp involuntarily. It's kids in full bravado mocking a horror film for not being scary, then insisting on sleeping with the lights on. There's a sense that we're all in on the joke, somehow. I don't mean to say that things aren't taken seriously. Creative enjoyment is deadly serious. Audience members, when they enter the dark theater, are challenging the directors and writers to scare them. The authors take up that challenge. Paula Maxa creates sordid tales for the readers, and they appreciate her for it. People can see the worst Ratano can create and think, Damn, how did he do that? Horror fascinated me as a kid. And I mean fascination in both its positive and negative aspects. I remember the VHS rental store had a life-size cutout of Pinhead from Hellraiser tucked in the dark corner of the horror section of the store. I was too scared to walk by that section, and yet I couldn't not try to get close to it. I'd peek at the scary figure, then looked away when it seemed that it was peeking back at me. The covers of those videos, all the skulls and the forbidden imagery, told me about a world that I couldn't dare enter, but at the same time I was drawn to it. I was scared out of my mind, and yet somehow, I wanted more. Then later I'd watch those movies with my friends. We'd tell each other true stories of the most hideous and gross urban legends we've heard of, all the while pretending not to be scared, but also checking the corner of your room at night. And now, as an adult, I listen to podcasts of people my age, talking about the movies that repulsed and attracted them as kids, the same ones that repulsed and attracted me, and I feel connected. In the end, horror feeds the imagination. Images of death and violence have a powerful effect on the mind. That's easy to understand from a biological perspective. But artists have known for ages that nothing makes a thing more memorable than a shocking image. Roman educators and even Christian monks used to teach their pupils the art of memorizing vast amounts of knowledge by associating what they're learning with violent, obscene images. You need to fill in the blank to take your mind where it does not want to go and then to come back. And that imagination is amplified when shared with others. Horror is nothing without its audience. No artist, to be honest, but horror is a form that especially requires a collaboration with the deepest, darkest parts of the mind. I'll leave the final word to Paula Maxa here. Quote, Imagination always transcends reality and it is the imagination, along with the shiver of the soul, that constitutes the poetics of fear. End quote. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.